Well, good day and welcome to another holiday edition for the online ministry at St. Augustine's Anglican Church in Inverell. My name's Matt. It's great that you're watching with us today. As we begin, let me read some words of scripture from Isaiah uh, chapter 9. It says, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and his name shall be called Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the God we worship. Uh, this is the one who has come to dwell with us. And so we go now to a time of praise.
build your church with life and power. Well, as we come to hear from God's word now, let me pray. Heavenly Father, God of power and life, glory of all who believe in you, fill this world with your splendor and show the nations the light of your truth. Father, we pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, our Bible readings today start in the Old Testament with Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through the 9. And what you see there will actually come up in our New Testament reading in a moment as well. Uh, our psalm for today is Psalm 16, and that New Testament reading is John chapter 2. It's all of the chapter, verses 1 through to 25. So take a moment now and read those with whoever you're watching with, and we'll come back and let's think about it together. Well, let's pray as we come to think about God's word together now. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us through your word. We give thanks that we can have it in our hands in front of us and pray that you would speak to us now by your spirit. Amen. Well, something I hear a whole lot around the start of January is New Year, New Me. It means that people have started on their New Year's resolutions. Uh, maybe it's that they're going to try and get to the gym more. Maybe it's they're going to try and start that new diet they've been wanting to do. Maybe they're going to try and fix their relationships. Or maybe they're going to develop new relationships or try something out that's going to help them be a better version of themselves. Uh, people want to believe the best in themselves. People believe that we can achieve anything we put our minds to. But I think it seems as often as we set these resolutions, as often as people do that, I mean, January, January 1, the gyms are full to bursting. Come February 1, not so much. Uh, people think more of themselves than what's realistic. They overestimate themselves, perhaps. But that doesn't only happen when it comes to New Year's resolutions. We think the same way when it comes to our own, own general state or condition. We think much of ourselves. We probably think, uh, we probably see ourselves in a better light than the way other people see us as well. And most people would want to think that they are generally good or mostly good. And we hope that other people will see us in that same way. And we also hope that God will see us in that same way. But what do you think? How does God actually see us? Mostly good? Sort of good? What's God's view of humanity? Well, the same question is raised in our Bible reading from John 2 today. Now, you may not have realized it as, as you read it through, but John chapter 2 is all about how we are before God. And what Jesus has to do with it. And today we start in what's famously known as Jesus' first miracle. Or as John puts it, his first sign. It's the wedding at Cana. And for many, this is a familiar story. I mean, Jesus, his mother and his disciples, they're going to a wedding. And something shameful for the bride and groom happens. They run out of grog. They run out of wine. Now, if this was your wedding, you would be ashamed. You'd be embarrassed. I was chatting with a friend of mine who went to his sister's wedding recently and something similar happened. They ran out of water and they ran out of food really quick. And he said people were dehydrated. Pe people were hungry. It was embarrassing. And he said his mother was just 
She was so embarrassed for the couple. And in this story here, Jesus' mother is embarrassed for whoever the groom is. Now, perhaps she was involved as part of the catering team. We don't know, but she brings the problem before Jesus. In verse 3, she says, When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. And Jesus replies to her with a gentle rebuke in verse 4. He says, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus is saying here that he no longer goes by any worldly timetable, not even that of his parents. While he still honours and respects them, his chief concern is God's plan. Well, not seeming too deterred by his response, Mary comes in again, verse 5. His mother said to the servants this time, Do whatever he tells you. And now, this is a much better approach. She doesn't know what he's going to do, and I'm not sure what she's expecting him to do, but she simply entrusts the matter to him. And when she does, Jesus doesn't judge the people. He doesn't criticize them. He doesn't go, what are you doing? Your, your caterers, you, you, should, you shouldn't run out of wine. But what he does, he, he shows generosity and compassion. Have a look at verse 6 to 8. We're told that nearby stood six stone water jars the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Right, so total is about 600 litres here. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And then as we keep reading, when the master of the banquet, when the, when the MC, he tastes the wine that's drawn, he goes to the groom and he goes, Hey, this is great wine. I mean, normally people, people hold the, um, the, the cask wine. They save it till last, till all the good wine's gone. But you've done the opposite, he says. You've saved the best until last. And what we see here is, as in the beginning, Jesus has power over creation. He has power to create. Right from the very beginning of John's Gospel, chapter 1, he tells us that nothing was created without Jesus, a.k.a. everything was created through him. And so then, to move molecules and atoms, to, to re-transform the, um, the biochemistry of water to wine, if you like, that's nothing for Jesus. He doesn't need extra time or extra ingredients. He simply says, and it's so. And it's no accident that Jesus' first miracle recorded here is turning water into wine. Because it picks up on imagery used in the Old Testament that signifies the coming of God's kingdom. Now the Old Testament prophets, they pointed to a time when there would be an ultimate wedding feast, when God's generosity and his goodness and his provision, provision would be known by all. And it's a time of joy. Now one of the places where we see it is Isaiah chapter 25, our Old Testament reading today. We hear a picture there of, of the great banquet when God will only bring the best of wines, where death is swallowed up forever and we are in his presence. It's a picture that's picked up again then at the very end of the Bible in Revelation 19. It's a picture of God's ultimate victory that awaits for those who stand with Jesus. In Revelation 19.9 he says, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Now for us, John 2 is a call, it's a reminder that this life isn't all there is. 
That for those who stand with Jesus, there is a great future that awaits. A time when we'll experience nothing but the blessings of God. When we'll be lifted out of the sufferings, the fullness, the brokenness of this world that we're in. It should be a reminder then to fix your eyes on that great blessing while we battle away on this side of heaven. Now, sometimes I meet people who, they don't want to know Jesus. They don't want to become Christians because they, for some reason, think that to be a Christian means that you live a life of missing out. But Jesus' sign here is a small glimpse. It's a small reminder that the Christian life is not one of missing out. At the same time, don't hear me say that Jesus is pro-overindulging and getting drunk because he's not. No, he's he's not. He's pro-self-control, in fact. But Jesus is not anti-party. He's not anti-fun. He's not a killjoy. He's absolutely about life lived to the full with God. And sometimes, for a lot of us, this life can, it can feel pretty good. But it also, at different times, can feel, well, it can leave us wanting more. It can leave us feeling pain. And for those who don't know Jesus, sadly, this life is as good as it gets. But for those of us who do know him, this life is as bad as it gets. Because when you stand with Jesus, you have the right to be called a child of God. And you have the hope of that blessed future, that, ba- that wedding banquet with God. And in verse 11 here, John tells us that what Jesus did in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And now a sign always points forward to a deeper truth than itself. And this miracle, more than Jesus simply changing some water molecules to be wine, it allows them and us to peek into his true identity. And it's a taste of what the future holds for those whose faith is in Jesus. But it's still worth asking, is that it? Is it really just a glorified party trick that Jesus is doing and he expects us to pick up on some small Old Testament illusion? Since I'm asking the question, you know the answer is, of course, no, that's not it. There's more going on here. Something else that may seem subtle at first. But what the wedding at Cana really points to is that there is a new way to deal with sin. And the key for understanding this whole story is the jars that are being used. I mean, John takes a moment in verse 6 to tell us that they are the kind used for ceremonial washing. In other words, these jars are a constant reminder of sin. Because for the Jews, when when they sin, when they do the wrong thing before God, one of the things that needed to happen was a ritual purification, a symbolic washing in an effort to distance distance themselves from sin before God. And in Jesus taking these ceremonial washing jars and giving them a new purpose, I mean, on one level, theologically, he's saying that the old way of dealing with sin before God, it's gone. You You no longer need these. A new way is coming. Because when you think about it, can a physical washing with water actually wash away sin? Can it remove that heart motivation? Can it take away the guilt? Can it deal with the consequence before God? No. Water can wash away dirt, but it cannot wash away sin. A new way was coming. This is what Jesus is saying. He's bringing a new way. And just as the wine he provided is superior in every way to the old, so is everything that Jesus brings, 
including his new way of dealing with sin. So is that all superior to what came before? And that's actually how the two stories in chapter 2 tie together. You've got the wedding at Cana first, and then you've got the clearing of the temple, and they are both making the one point that the old is being done away with, and the new is here. And as we read on, we see that not only does Jesus uh, bring about a new way of dealing with sin, he also is the new means for accessing God. As we read in the next story from verse 12 onwards, we see Jesus clearing the temple. It's another pretty well-known story. Now, in the temple, you've got different courtyards. Uh, You've got the court of the priests, the court of the men, the court of the women, and the outermost courtyard is the court of the Gentiles. Those are the non-Jewish people, those who weren't originally part of God's Old Testament uh, covenant practices. And so the Jews, they didn't let them into the center. They are in the court around the outside. And as Jesus goes into the temple area then, what does he discover? He finds that they set up a marketplace where the Gentiles are meant to be meeting. And so verse 15, he, he makes a whip and he drives out the cattle and the sheep and he knocks over the tables of the money changers. And he says in verse 16 there, you can see it, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Now, the problem isn't that they're buying and selling for temple purposes. The problem is where they are. And so some of the Gentiles are being bumped out of the way to make room for, for this marketplace. The religious leaders have taken the market that used to be outside the temple and they brought it inside, filling the temple not with prayer and worship, but now with the bellowing of animals. And for us, one thing is really clear here. Jesus has a concern for the right worship of God. And so he clears out the temple. But but the religious leaders, they don't like this. And so they, they ask him in verse 18, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Verse 19, Jesus answers them. Destroy this temple, he says, and I'll raise it again in three days. Now, at a literal level, if they had done the unthinkable and actually destroyed the temple, Jesus could have restored it stone by stone. He is the creator of all things after all, the one who can move matter and change things, just like we've seen in the story beforehand. And so, If that had happened, that would have proved that he had the authority that he claimed to have. But of course, the leaders, they don't believe him. They're not going to do that. They say in verse 20, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But verse 21, But the temple he had spoken of was his body. They are asking for a sign. And so Jesus points them to a future sign. So the greatest sign of all, he's pointing them to when he would die on the cross and rise back to life again about three years later. He's not talking about the physical temple in Jerusalem. He's talking about his body. The one in whom we find the perfect self-revelation of God. The word become flesh. Now the temple in Jerusalem, it was a place where the Jews would come together to meet and worship God. But the religious people, They had totally misunderstood the whole role of the temple. It was never an end of itself. Jesus, though, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the temple pointed towards. You see, worship of God no longer goes through a temple. The true place where we come and have access to God, it's through Jesus. 
Jesus' body offered up as a sacrifice for us and then raised up in power is the new temple where God and humanity, creator and creation, come to meet face to face. And this means that there is no more ceremonial washing that the Jews practice. There's no more need for the animal sacrifices that happened in the temple. Now, Hebrews 10, you go away and read it later. Hebrews 10 tells us that those things are done away with, that they were temporary, that they were, they could never fully deal with sin. But Jesus is the one true and perfect sacrifice for us, for sin, once and for all. And so despite what the Catholic Church teaches, communion is not a place where we come to offer up Jesus' body again and again and again as a new sacrifice each time, nor does Jesus' death merely open up a way for us to get to God on account of our own works. No, Jesus' death in our place means that we are saved by grace. We are saved by faith and not the result of our works. That's Ephesians 2. There is nothing more to be paid. There is no more sacrifice to be made. When your, when your faith is firmly in Jesus, he has washed you clean forever. And so there are two signs in this chapter. Firstly, it's the turning of the water into wine. And the second one is the pointing forward to Jesus' death and resurrection as the fulfillment of all the temple and its practices. And so the question for you then is what do you make of John chapter 2? What do you want to say about Jesus as you read this? Remember, the author John, he's not just writing these things down for us to have a fun story to share or something to talk about on a Sunday. No, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he's recording these miraculous signs so that you would believe in Jesus and find life in him. And so that if you do already, that you continue in this journey of faith. And quite characteristically of John, the author, he also shows us the responses of some of the people who were there. At firstly, verses 11 and 22, we have the disciples, Jesus' disciples who saw these things and were told, put their faith in him. Well, secondly, verse 23, we're told that many people saw these things performed and believed in his name. But what it says next is really interesting. Many people saw these, the signs he was performing and believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. I mean, we might ask, what is going on here? Why would Jesus hold himself back from them? I mean, when we told in, in John 1 verse 12, that for everyone who believes in Jesus' name, he gives the right to become children of God? Just like in the parable of the sower, not everyone who comes to Jesus in faith is the good soil. I mean, some people have faith that Jesus is the Son of God. Some people have faith that Jesus is a powerful miracle worker, but the only true faith that brings new life is the faith that sees Jesus' death and says, that death was for my sin, my uncleanness. Only, the only true faith is the one that comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, please come into my life as Lord and Saviour. Well, in the next chapter, uh, Jesus goes on to tell us that that true faith means being born again. It means being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And we'll look at that next week. But notice here how John finishes in verse 25. He says, He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. 
Now, the idea of testimony, of witness, it comes up a whole bunch in John's gospel here. It's already been in chapter 1 a whole lot. But John tells us that there was one witness that was not needed. And that is that Jesus did not need informing of what we are like. As God, he knows what is in our hearts. He knows that one way or another, we are all in active rebellion against God. And it comes, it comes out in our words, our actions, or inwardly, it's in our thoughts and our desires. We tell God, I don't want to do things your way. I want to do things my way. And Jesus knows that deep down we are all affected by sin, by this attitude. We are all unclean and need washing. And as we hold up the mirror of the Bible to our lives, what does it reveal to us? We find that we are not fundamentally good, like we'd like to think. We find that we are deeply broken and in need of fixing. Now, when it comes to those New Year's resolutions, people say, New Year, New Me. And while I think that we like to think the best of ourselves, and we like to think that we are capable of change, when it comes down to it, we are not fundamentally good. We are corrupted. We are broken. But there is also nothing we can do ourselves to change this, this state, our true condition before God. We're all sinners in need of God's grace and mercy. And we are in need of Jesus' death in our place. If I was to say, new year, new me, it would only be because I am made alive through the grace and generosity of Jesus. And so if we're going to have a New Year's resolution for you, why not let it be one that, like Jesus, in the temple, we have a deep concern for true and proper worship of God in our lives. That we would have a hatred for sin and idolatry. And that we would let Jesus drive all that out of our hearts. Why not resolve and pray that we would be a people whose lives are zealous to worship God and so full of him that nothing else can intrude. As we read John 2 here today, we see that Jesus knows us even better than we know ourselves. And I think we learn at least two basic truths about ourselves here as well. The first of which is that we are deeply morally flawed. And secondly, even though we are, to God, to Jesus, we are nonetheless infinitely valued. And we know that we're valued by Jesus because he went to the cross and he died for us. He took our sin so that we can be part of his wedding banquet where we experience God's goodness and generosity in full. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you are a good and generous God, that we see that throughout the Old Testament. In fact, the ultimate fulfillment of that pointed to throughout all of Scripture. And so, Father, help us to see your generosity, your goodness, your kindness, your abundance that overflows, and see the way that we, we can find that in Jesus. Help us to have hearts that don't focus on what's right in front of us in our world right now, but live in a way that looks forward to that great future we have. Father, help us to be people who see Jesus for who he truly is, that we see his glory as we look and read of his miracles here, that we see Him when, his glory when we look to the cross. And Father, help us to, to know, to understand, appreciate the way that he has paid it all, that there's no more cleansing, there's no more temple, there's no more sacrifices. Jesus has opened the way for us to be in relationship with you through faith. Uh, Lord, help us to 
help us to desire your your glory, your worship more than we desire our own. Help let that be the, the marker of our lives. And especially as we as we think about all these kind of resolutions that people make, let us resolve and pray that that would be in our lives, in our hearts, so that you would be glorified. And we pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, we go finally to a time of praise.
Well, friends, go in peace, remembering the great generosity of our God through the Lord Jesus, the one who makes a new way to deal with sin, who makes a new way for us to be in relationship with our God. Remember his love for you and the way we see that on the cross. Go in peace.